All right. Tweet was sent. It's 5 o'clock Pacific. Ridiculously in the middle of the night in Europe. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, in addition to uh, usual cast of suspects, we also have um, the editor of my tweets, among other things. So, Bridget, you actually saw this tweet before I tweeted it, the tweet that we're going to be talking about today. I did. It didn't need any edits, so, Brian, it's excellent writing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, if it's not clear, if it's, if it's not obvious, uh, Bridget and I, her, I, she's my wife, I've been wanting to say that. Oh, you got that in wow. right away. I, we're you, done. I, we're done. You know, I, have you seen that video going around of the, the woman just saying that to her wife and then her wife leaves her. So, but it was very funny. It was a very funny video. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to saying that. Um, so th- just to be, to, to get the subject at the top, um, we are, uh, about a week ago, um, I wouldn't say apropos of nothing, something that's been on my mind a little bit. Um, I talked about writer's block for software engineers. That's, I, I believe that software engineers get writer's block. I actually think this is a very controversial observation. Um, but, Bridget, I did have you look at it before I tweet. Is there a pattern from your perspective of the tweets I have you look at before I tweet them? Um, perhaps, well, firstly, things that I will understand not industry specific but maybe that's because also the things that i would understand that aren't industry specific have bleed over into the you know quote-unquote rest of the world and maybe you're touching on things that aren't talked about much or like this things that uh, are not taken for granted Okay, I think you're speaking a little euphemistically. I really have you look at the stuff that I think is going to get me in a lot of trouble. That's where I'm rushing. That's, that's, that's kind of what I assume. Yeah, I, absolutely. I yeah. Most, most of the time. Yeah, but I'm trying to narrow. <laughs> most of the time is dialing for no, right? Be like, well, we can do that, but we can never send those kids to school again. Uh, pretty much. And <laughs> and uh, I have, I've been, you know, and I take that super seriously. Like anytime Bridget's like, no, do not send that. I'm like, delete it. Not going to, absolutely not going to send that. Thank you. What about the times I say don't tweet that before you've even thought of tweeting it? Okay, <laughs> I would like to say that many of the times you say don't tweet that before I thought of tweeting it, I was not going to tweet it. I know this is like not verifiable and not believable, but like usually <laughs> when you say that, I'm not like sitting on a tweet. I don't know if I can say that every time. So the, but Bridget, when you looked at the, the reason and the reason I wanted to, aside from the, I wasn't necessarily worried about this one getting me into trouble. But I did want your take as a writer and just what – if it felt reasonable, if that was a reasonable portrayal of writer's block or not. And I, I think your reaction was just like, yeah, why would – like you, there are certain tweets that you look at where you're like, why am I looking at this? Is this, is this tweet like deeply offensive in some way that I don't realize? And I feel like this mm-hmm. is one of those. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think part of – what made it one of those is that you know, Brian and I have known each other for 20 years, uh, is that you have, Brian, have always described yourself um, or software engineers as well as writers. Um, and I'm assuming that the kit and caboodle goes with that, including writer's block, even if you're not writing the same way I or someone else who you know, writes uh, stories or someone might be writing. Just because you mentioned how long we've been together, can I, I've got a story I'd like to get off my chest. Do you mind? And then we're going to go into this. Can I? As long as it won't bore everyone. And this is my uh, equivalent of saying, don't tweet that. No. Yeah, exactly. To your right, right. Exactly. You know, I, I don't have the opportunity to run this by you to tell me not to tweet it. So I can just like say what I'm about to say. Um, so I wrote a game in college. 
And the, <laughs> so. Adam knows where this is going. Right. Adam knows where this is going. Um, so I wrote a, a, a game in college, a, a, uh, a game in which two players would play Tetris against one another. They would use their prowess in Tetris to buy weapons to screw up the other person's game. And uh, two people who I, this is called Battletris. I, I dare say, I, uh, Adam, you discovered this after I left school and became it kills me to say this, but became a better Battletoads player than I am, which really, it, it's, do you know how many years it's taken me to really process tough, that? Tough, tough but fair. Tough but fair. <laughs> so you and I would have these absolute, like, huge Battletoads matchups. And Bridget, at some point when you were working on your dissertation, I introduced you to this game. And <laughs> you and Matt Ahrens would, do you remember these games with Matt Ahrens? I do. I do. Yeah. Do you want to describe your games with Matt Aaron's, your Battletoads games with Matt Aaron's? Um, okay. Having emphatically said I do, I don't remember the detail that maybe you remember. I mean, they were focused and tense. I was very into this. Uh, is something I'm missing? Uh, well, that's a really interesting to get your take on it. Adam, what is your take on Bridget's games with Matt? I feel like I was going to be thrown into the bus on this one to, to, to say what cannot be said. Uh, but you know, I think it was kind of like, Watching the kids' soccer game, is that, is that sort of fair? like oh god, that's you know, exactly like, it. Well, wait, who's age? the who's the angry parent here? <laughs> um, uh, where the parents I are think, disinterested Brian, in this case. Brian's sort of the supportive parent, a supportive like, parent, but like talking on the sidelines about something else, talking like work conversation right. on the sidelines. Yeah, hey, it's hey, you're there, right? You're there. You're like, there. Most you're there. of life is just showing up, but yeah. it's like a kids' soccer game, but no time limit. Right. Right. It's just sort of like, it's nice that the kids are having fun. So Matt, Aaron, so Bridget's working on her dissertation. <laughs> Matt is working on ZFS. And they're both like in a little bit of a doldrums, I think. Not, not a writer's block, yeah. but just like you're both at like, he's at the tough part of ZFS. You're at the tough part of your dissertation. And you, I think you both welcomed the distraction. And you both were not very good at battle trusts. Like, <laughs> I guess I blocked that one out. Okay, so you were both. This is why the youth soccer analogy is so good because this is not like high level youth soccer. This is like watching six year olds play soccer, and it just like the it, Adam. I just remember like they just neither one of them was good enough to off the other. No, no, every game was zero to zero. It was just sort of like uh, just just kind of in effect couldn't push the other one over, um, but nor could they be pushed over. And so they would. They, <laughs> Before you go too far, Brian, like, does it still compile and can we get it? Uh, okay, so we'll get to that later. No and no, unfortunately, is the answer to both of those questions. But um, yeah, if, if Oxide ever does a hard pivot, it's definitely going to be in the battle, Chris. Um, the, so these two are, are not good enough to off one another. They would have games that would go on. Bridget, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think it's like four hours. I mean, they were these. No. Were, Wow. I, I, I think for the sake of this conversation, they were cricket-like. Absolutely. But, I mean, oh, <laughs> cricket-like multi-day battletrist tests. <laughs> okay, so... That doesn't sound like praise, Adam. And, um, I think that's actually... Oh. I think, Adam, you are, like, just split in the middle here in a really impressive way, i got to say. You are just nailing it with, like, <laughs> metaphors that are both accurate and, like, yeah, they kind of are what you think they are. They're, they're great. So, and then, Bridget, you and I would play together. So play against one another somewhat frequently. Right. But you and I playing together was sort of like the parent teaching the kid chess where you patiently pretended that you only had pawns or something. I mean, um, I, I knew I was being coddled. 
Okay, well, sadly, you were not being coddled. I was definitely like the psychotic parent that feels they're going to teach their children chess by, by, by whooping them. Um, I definitely was like, I, I mean, I, my belief is like, look, I'm always going to play to win. And uh, at one point, you, and the game, would you know, there, were, there were some quality problems in the game, not too many, but you and I were playing. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Would you, would, <laughs> I, I think you should tell this story from your perspective. No, you carry on. You've, you've got the thread. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's a masterstroke because this, this shows you in such a positive light. So you come into the next room saying, hey, the game crashed. And you said, did you hear me? I said, the game crashed. And I, you had like, no, I, I must have had no reaction. And she said, the game crashed. I said, no, the game didn't crash. You won. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I beat you? And I'm like, you, de- you did beat me. Do you remember your victory parade around the apartment? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I was pretty quick to tell Adam as well. Yeah, I think, I think it was like uh, there was like a tattoo of the date, if I remember correctly. Some, some <laughs> re- really commemorated that moment. I commemorated the moment. And, All of my foot. And you did not tell Adam. I told Adam because <laughs> I know this. Because, Adam, do you remember this? Uh, indelibly. So I, I'm like, Adam, you're not going to believe what happened. She, um, she took a game off me. And I was like, wait, 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 who? I'm like, Bridget. I'm like, Bridget, what? What happened? And I kind of outlined a little bit what happened. I'm like, I can't believe she took a game already. And Adam's like, you know what this means? She's the one. You got you to gotta marry this girl. So there you go. Did you not know that, True. Bridget? Yeah, I do. I, it's all coming back. <laughs> okay. You, the, <laughs> you know, you left yourself muted for like a heartbeat too long. And I was just like, shit. I, uh, yeah, no, that was purely offspring related. <laughs> uh <laughs> Speaking, all right, so to get us back on topic and a little bit offspring related, one of our offspring, I'm not sure if it was the one that was bothering you or not, but the 14-year-old, I explained, hey, mom's going to be on the space with me. He's like, oh, okay, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, we're going to talk about writer's block for software engineers. He said, wait a minute, does that happen? I was like, yeah, we think it does, and that's what we're going to talk about. So, Bridget, get, I'm so sorry, sorry for the long, I just could not resist telling the, uh, the story that involves the two of you. That's great context. So, so Brian, when you, when you wrote that tweet, first, first, were you were you actively kind of suffering from writer's block or code? And and as, as someone also who writes a lot of prose and a lot of code, you know, how do you think about writer's block? So I think this is why, and Bridget, love your take on this. I think of this as part of the challenge is when you are doing something that is creative and really unstructured, it can be... There, you have these moments where you know exactly what you're doing. And, you know, we in software, I don't know if, if, if you've got the same term in the writing world, but this has been called flow in software, probably, probably borrowed from some other domain. But where you are, um, where you're in this kind of this flow state where it's just coming right out of you, which is great. And then there are these other periods of time where Everything feels daunting or you feel like you're taking the wrong approach, I feel, is when this happens to me a lot, where I'm not convinced that, like, is the, am I going down the right direction or the wrong direction? I was not suffering at that moment that I tweeted that. But I feel that this is something that has happened to me a lot in my career, and I do feel that we don't talk about it enough. So, Bridget, does that make sense, first of all, from a, a writer's writer's block perspective? Is that, does that sound similar? Yeah, it does. Um, without s- sort of stating too many caveats, it's different for everyone, obviously. 
Um, the flow thing is interesting. I didn't realize that was such a broadly used term. I certainly sort of get into the zone, whether I you know, put some music on or just I'm able to block out everything around me and write what I'm planning to write or let the words flow or whatever it is. But um, write, I, I think you know, writing is also writing. I write, or to be clear to everyone, I, um, I write fiction novel-length fiction. I am unpublished, uh, which is what we say instead, or pre-published. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of aspiring, which is a silly term. Um, but I take it seriously. Um, it's obviously not a day job. Um, I've been doing it for, oh gosh, I don't know, a, a while now. And um, so back to your question, Brian, um, Yes, I, I, I do think that makes sense, but I think there's also an aspect to always having an ear and eye on um, on industry and audience and uh, genre requirements and all this other stuff that maybe keeps one eye open, as it were, rather than being totally, totally absorbed by it. It, that it, makes it, the, it being the writer's block in that sentence. Or the it being... Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the flow. The, the flow, I got you saying. The, 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 yeah. It, it, where you are kind of constantly, when you're writing for an audience, you've got this kind of other thing that you've got your eye on, which I feel we've got in software right. too. There's, an, there's, an, there's absolutely an analogy for that in software where you, I mean, definitely an analogy where you're like, am I building this in a way that the user of the software is going to actually like? Is this, am I doing the right thing? To be clear, because I could be, not everyone is like this. Some people are underwriters. I am an overwriter. I could write forever. I could write words and words. I don't have a problem with spewing out flow. Um, that, that's fine. Um, so uh, as an aside, I don't know if anyone here has heard of NaNoWriMo. It, um, it stands for National Novel Writing Month. And hey, if you are not an aspiring but a pre-published writer uh, of any sort and you want to start putting long form down on paper or on the screen, um, National Novel Writing Month takes place in November each year, and it's run by a nonprofit organization that does great work promoting um, and supporting people who are getting into writing. And I started writing long fiction by doing a, a stint at NaNoWriMo, which is where you commit to writing 50,000 words of whatever, um, but ideally this is something that will make sense when you get to the end of it, um, 50,000 words of a novel in that month. And I mean, I, I got the manuscript somewhere. I, I, I can't quite bring myself to look at it, but the, the writing, the content was not an issue. So, um, yeah. So my definition of, of what I understand flow to be, it's not just about the quantity of words coming out, right? It's about the focus and it's about the, the right stuff coming out, right? It's like the being being absolutely focused in what you're doing, and you know, no other interruptions, or you know, the, the other stuff melts away, and and you're getting good progress. It's not just volume; it's it's correctness too. That that that's sort of an aspect of it. Yeah, and I would say it's even stronger than that. I feel, and Adam, I want to get your take on this too. I feel that when I'm in that state, I feel that there is something that needs to get out of me and I'm just like the vessel to get it into the editor. Like I, I've got such a clear idea of the thing I want to go add or the thing I want to go build. I, I, I know exactly what it is and I'm just like, just absolutely banging it out because I've got that clear vision for what it is. 
Yeah, I, I totally agreed on that. It's, it's, it's sort of the story that tells itself. And I think that what, what you said at the top, Ryan, of, of the, the aspect of both creative and many ways to do it, that's what kind of gets me stuck. It's, it's when I'm sort of both for like writing blog posts or longer form things or writing software where I kind of, you know, have a false start and then I kind of unwind because I'm not really happy with that. And I'm kind of paralyzed by indecision between these different paths. Um, and so it, you know, without, without those kind of multiple paths, hard to see around the corner about which one it is, uh, you know, that, that's what really kind of trips me up at times. Adam, is this because there are problems that you are facing that you don't know how to solve or you don't know how to solve them or you're not sure which problems to solve to make progress? You know, it's, 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 a, it's a little different than that because I think often it's not knowing the, the right way or the best way or, or, or kind of the right way to tell the story, like the right way to structure things. Oh, God. Um, mm-hmm. More, you know, because I, I saw, you know, about Brian, I went, uh, I thought your, your tweet was great and I, I saw it kind of right when it came out and didn't notice how, how many people also liked it. And I saw a bunch of people responding saying, um, you know, that, that it didn't feel familiar with, with kind of a, um, you know, outside of like a more cre- creative realm. That is to say, if you're just problem solving, you can't have writer's block. And I think that sort of under, underscored this idea where like it doesn't necessarily mean we don't know how to solve the problem, but rather we don't know how to, again, tell that story the right way, structure things the right way. Absolutely. And I feel like, so I also feel that in looking at those replies, Adam, I feel like there is a correlation on age that the longer you've been in software engineering, the more I feel you know that there are multiple ways of doing things. And I feel that that can be crippling where you're like, actually, I don't want to incur technical debt. I actually want to measure twice and cut once. And, but sometimes like, actually, okay, I'm actually measuring a thousand times at this point. Um, or that's actually a poor analogy because it is, you're, you're trying to pick between different paths. And that's when I, I feel that I, I get stuck. And I, I, I'm not sure if it, 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 Bridget, does that make sense from the writing perspective? Is that, is that, a, is, is there an yeah, analogy to be there? technical issues here can you hear me yes we could hear you did i did i mute everyone accidentally we could hear yes, bridget. you did yeah sorry bridget i muted you you should be unmuted now yeah i i think that whoops and now oh dear oh dear oh no all right, I well, I, I can because I can hear her talking in the next room, so I know she's. I, I, unlike with most of our technical issues, I actually know that. All right, oh, I, we can hear you. This now. is yes. good now. Yeah, that, that's that's a headphone issue. Um, Brian, could you recap briefly? Um, I the, the just asking you if this this like not knowing which path to take. Like I can see doing this path, and I can see the kind of. I'm seeing around the corners on this path and the consequences there. I'm seeing this other path. I'm seeing a third path. I'm seeing a fourth path. I'm seeing a fifth path. I'm seeing 12 other paths and becoming crippled by the, the amount, the degrees of freedom that we have in software are often, this is where there is a parallel with writing where we have this tremendous, many, many, many degrees of freedom, much more so than you have in a more rote discipline, but those degrees of freedom can be overwhelming and can result in us being paralyzed, I feel. Oh, that's definitely, I mean, that's definitely an issue with writing. I mean, that is, that's the issue on so many different levels. It's whether 
you're you're writing something in science fiction and you're like god this is ridiculous this should be a you know contemporary realistic or i'm writing this in first person and this is this absolutely must be in third person i have to rewrite or just the whole uh, you know you talked about flow being something that um you talk about in your field people often talk about writers often talk about the shiny new object um and that's well this idea is so much better than the current <laughs> idea i'm going to put the current idea aside and just chase those shiny new objects Forever. Wait a minute. Okay. There's, we, no, we talk about the shiny new object in software. Who, who invented the shiny new object? <laughs> Maybe we yeah, stole it. Yeah, software is full of that, right? Like, software is full of second guessing yourself. I mean, it, that, that to me is like the equivalent of our writer's block is getting stuck in that analysis paralysis and like, yeah, this is going to go wrong. So rewrite it again, like the seventh time. Right. Okay. So, and so here's my, and this is what I really want to get to is what are the remedies for writer's block because i think that if you are as a software engineer if you're suffering from some of those writer's blocks i feel that the remedies that writers use have an analog in the in what can work for us too so the what have you found in terms of like when you've been stuck what what some of the remedies have been for that okay so i think brian and i were talking about this um offline a little bit earlier i try to think Am I looking for tactics or strategies? And I don't want to overwork that metaphor because um, I'll probably overwork it in the wrong way. Um, but are these small issues that I can address, technical issues with what I'm writing? So, for example, am I stuck in a certain chapter or section of the writing, finding it boring and unconvincing? Then I'll sort of hone in on the craft and look at the way I'm using language. Um, and so that's sort of, that's a, a craft technical solution to the problem, hopefully. But then there's also the sort of strategic bigger picture stuff is that's like, is this going to reach an audience? And is this going to get an agent or will a publisher buy this? And that stuff is harder um, to solve. And I think when it comes to those sort of more existential questions um, that drive the writer's block, I would say putting words, any words on the paper is good. Taking a break, writing, uh, I'm, I'm talking totally writing here. I assume that you two will be able to think of analogies to writing software, but say, take a scene, write it from a different character's point of view. Um, write a vignette or a short story or a flash fiction about a character um, that doesn't make its way into the, into the actual novel, but is useful for exploring something. Uh, and the, that will maybe spark a solution to the problem. I, yeah, I, mean, I think identifying the problem is also like what what is what is wrong here um, is a huge part of it, and that's not always easy because sometimes those problems this exist outside. My, my th this is beautiful, Bridget. Beautiful, Bridget. Just because what you, I mean, what I'm hearing is prototyping, and I think it's it's totally. it's it's so beautiful that you have this in the writing discipline. And it's such sage advice, and and I think probably like writing uh, prose as well. It can feel like a diversion. It can feel like the opposite of progress. But to your point, often it, it gives you the the kind of mouthfeel of the problem and and the texture of the problem, and is in helpful in ways that are surprising. Well, that's a really lovely way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, it reminds me of advice that Adam I know that I've certainly dispensed and used myself when stuck on a single bug. If you get a 
you know, you get these bugs that are just like absolutely psychotic and it can be really uh, dispiriting when you feel like you're not making progress on a single bug. I always advise people to spend some time writing debugging infrastructure. Write the um, write the D commands in the MDB parlance, or the, the, write part of the debugger effectively that you wish you had anyway. And then you're actually like writing software at least, and you feel like you are moving forward. And then that debugging infrastructure will come in useful in the next problem. And then in, in, the, in the process of doing that, you're often likely to, to to resolve your actual issue. Yeah. No. Totally. And to what degree is, you know, at least in the writing world, is it about just going off and doing something else um, that may or may not even be related to it versus, you know, doing something that is specifically related? Ah, my opportunity to talk about the ceramics I took up during COVID, <laughs> 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 which I did take up initially as a Zoom class um, because I wanted to do something with my hands that was not writing. And I wanted to think creatively and have to think several steps ahead, which you have to do with ceramics, um, like making anything, um, and hopefully sort of get myself back into a writing mindset. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm sort of throwing around a few other things I've done. I'm thinking about kind of an excuse to get outside, but I used to say I'm going to take myself on a sound walk. And this was when I was early drafting something. I went on a walk by the uh, Alameda shore, beautiful part of the Bay Area, and listened for sounds and tried to describe them and wrote notes about them and just like gathering uh, a toolkit or sort of an inventory of things I could use later on. I had no purpose for them. You know, it was purely just observing, writing, listening. Um, and yeah, that getting out of, getting off the path of what I thought I should be doing was often a good way to get back on that path and feel refreshed. You know, you know Bridget, one, one of the least helpful comments, I think, on Brian's tweet, <laughs> someone's, someone's saying, you know, I like to get out and walk, which I thought, great, great advice, you know, cha change the scenery, <laughs> you know, s step away from the problem. Someone else responded, well, you know, I've got a treadmill built into my desk, <laughs> problem solved. I missed that one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the value of both of those activities, right? Uh, both uh, pottery as a fellow potter myself, and oh, nice. uh, and going for walks, both have for, uh, forms of meditation, right? Yes, there's some meditation aspect to it. Yeah, that that's yeah, absolutely. I mean, and not to sort of go on about the the pottery ceramics too much, but the more I got into it, I mean, I've been doing this literally six months, but the more I got into it, the more I realized the complexity of steps that you uh that you need to get to that product I, i'm making it sound like some industry thing but to, to get to you know whatever you want um so it really became a sort of meditation on um on the creative process as well for me and being comfortable with being a few steps behind or sort of planning at a bigger scale in a different medium yeah that resonates hard with me i i when i took up pottery few years ago now, uh, I saw very strong overlaps between um, pottery uh, and and software production, and uh, I found there was a lot of parallels between between the two, and it was also really refreshing to go back to being a beginner at something and uh, accepting that you're not going to be good at it for some time and, and uh, taking pleasure in that process. Definitely. Yeah, having a sense of wonder at something, is, uh, that's 
wrath when you can oh, well, that. I mean, God, so many good points in, in there from both of you. The, but I love in your point about being the, a beginner at something and how, you know, on the one hand, we kind of romanticize this kind of growth mindset. And on the other hand, we kind of slay ourselves when we feel like we are, something is taking longer than we think it should. But of course, in software, everything takes longer than it should. I, I feel that things are rarely done faster than you think that they will be done. And I, I also feel that we are, and I love in your point about, and Bridget, you too, about about using this as a way to to uh, do to go through the creative process in a different kind of medium, and how that is helpful when you get back to your actual craft. And I feel in software we kind of falsely dichotomize the world, and I think it's a mistake, a huge mistake, to think of what is effectively a, a, a block in our creative process as burnout. I mean, it's, it's kind of like our one word for everything. Like everything is burnout, and burnout obviously very much exists. But not everything is burnout, and you like you may have struggle connecting for something that's not burnout. And by the way, if you're burned out, there's a different thing that you probably want to do versus you're stuck, right? I don't know, Adam. But what do you think? I mean, I, I feel those are really, really different. I, I think I think that's spot on because if you're sort of like misdiagnosing an illness and they're and taking the wrong kind of remedy. Um, and I think if you're, if you're kind of, if everything looks like burnout to you, then you're misapplying, uh, you know, the, the solutions where, you know, writer's block or some of these more ephemeral, um, I don't know, like sticking points, you know, ha have maybe simpler resolutions or, or less radical solutions. Uh, burnout and writing is when you don't write. I mean, you, you stopped, you can't, you're not interested, no new idea, no, no shiny new idea will, will be alluring or interesting in any way. I mean, it's, it's, it's over. Until... You're right. Yeah. And you, you've completely lost the joy of the craft. And I think that like software engineers that think that they've lost, I, I, I and maybe this is just my fundamental optimist, but I think that there is such a profound joy for so many of us in this craft. And it, it's sad to me when people lose that joy and then don't go through work to rediscover it. I mean, I think that that is like, I think it's really, really important that people have joy in the domain and joy in what they're doing. Is there also an aspect um, where you have to consider that for many most people doing this, it's also what puts bread on the table. I mean, there are things that you just have to do versus things that you're doing purely, oh, I'm dichotomizing here, maybe a way I shouldn't, but versus things that primarily bring joy. Yeah, Adam, I saw you unmuting on that. What do you want to take that oh, one? Oh, no, no. It's it, it's an interesting point, Bridget, because you're right. But that that necessity uh, exacerbates it, right? When you, when, uh, or at least for me, you know, when it's like I've, I've set a deadline, I have to get it done. Um, and that is not, that can be clarifying, but also can be even more stifling. Now I've really got to do, do it. Now I'm already a week late, so I've got to somehow get it done in half the time or something. And, and you can kind of talk yourself in circles and make even less progress. It, it, or you can, I think in terms of like talking yourself in circles and your brain wrapping itself around the axle, I also find that, you know, we have such a privileged existence in software. There's kind of this idea of like, what the fuck am I complaining about? Like I am, you know, yes, we have to do things that, to your point, virtually we've got to do things that are, you know, not great, but or are or I have some um, some kind of rote element to them. But by and large, like we have 
pretty great existences. We get to solve interesting problems, express our craft. We get, we, it's ridiculously lucrative. And then, but I feel, Adam, I don't know about you, but I feel that like that can almost work against us where you're just like, well, now I'm actually like upset at myself that I'm upset at myself. I, you, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? You get very, very meta. Yes. Well, and I, you know, we had someone working at a company that will remain nameless who was getting a, uh, an outsized reward for working at that company absolutely wanted to come to Oxide, but what felt guilty that he was staying for a very large amount of money. And then guilty that he felt guilty and he was having panic attacks making a ridiculous amount of money and i feel that like in some ways in software there's an analog for that we're like why am i having a panic attack or not quite not that bad in my case but like why am i wrapping myself around the axle when we are so lucky when we are actually getting paid to express our craft and then of course you get back to the you know it does not help it it, it turns into a bit of a loop right so, so Brian, you, like a- well i mean you, to I'll, some degree, you also reap what you sow, right? I mean, if you go to Amazon on the basis that they pay, you know, the highest number, um, and not because it's something you actually feel any level of intrinsic motivation to work on, um, I can very easily see that being more conducive to burnout than, say, you know, going to work for a somewhere like Oxide where the problems look far more interesting. Yeah, and I think that you, especially, you know, some of the most miserable people I know are people that have taken a very, uh, took a handsome pay package and then adjusted their life around that pay package and now feel like they're trapped um, in an outrageously well-paying job, but they have kind of lost some of that, and they have, they're, they're kind of reaping what they, they sowed there, I, mean, I think you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's the junior lawyer package, right? You, totally. You make sure they buy the Cadillac so they, they can never leave. <laughs> Man, that is true. If you really want to get a, a demographic that feels that they are grossly underpaid and impoverished at like 600K a year, that's the, uh, the corporate attorneys are definitely good. Uh, but you're right. And and I think that like you, you want to like I, – I do think that you know there's a degree to which people are kind of going in their eyes open and they're kind of creating their unhappiness for themselves. Um, but I think to, to, to unwind from all of that, I, I think to um, I, I want to get back to some of these software analogs, Adam, because when, when Bridger was talking about like doing these things that are kind of off to the side, a bunch of things in software came to my head. Um, I don't know if you had some similar kind of ideas. Oh yeah, I mean, but between uh, I think your your analog for, your discussion of debugging infrastructure, I thought was so spot on, in part because some sometimes. Those are the areas where I suffer personally from writer's block the most, where um, it can it can feel like, is this the right thing to be working on? Um, because it's not necessarily contributing to the customer experience. You know, it's, it's several degrees removed from that. Um, but but to your I mean, to your point earlier, it's almost always the right move. Well, and and I mean, the right time to plan debugging infrastructure is definitely twenty years ago. But the uh, the second best time to plan debugging infrastructure is today. And there are, yeah. there are so many times when I feel like that. But I feel like there are other analogs around that, like around CI/CD, right? Or there are kind of there's operational stuff that we have to do as software engineers. That is, if you feel stuck, like go off and write some of that software. That is. It's you know lower consequence software. You don't have to worry about whether and you know that you're making your own world better. 
but just do that in, with, with the eye of like, but you've got to get back to the coal face. I think that's kind of a challenge. Yeah. It, it's a great point because it's also it's it's sort of straight ahead. It it, it takes away the the messy field, and it, it some of it's also lower stakes. Where you but you can get that uh, that that feeling of being productive, and then kind of nurture that f- flame back to the proximate problem, the the one that's that's getting you stuck. Okay, you brought up a very good point and a key word in terms of productivity. Are Bridget? Do are there are do writers have the same problem that we we in software engineering have become strung out on our own need to be personally productive in a way that I I feel can be really harmful, Adam. I don't know what they, what, what you I mean. I feel like we want to be. I mean, it's great to want to be productive every day. Like that's terrific, and we should all aspire to that. But I feel like so often, at least for me personally, that ends up working against itself. I don't know. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, must-have advice, like you must write every day, you must write every morning, you must write a thousand words a day, and that doesn't help people who can't do that for whatever reason, whether it's you know job or whatever else. Um, and it can exacerbate a feeling of writer's block because you're not meeting this bare minimum to then develop your craft or your work or whatever you're doing. So absolutely. So the other thing, that, again, I'm I'm cheating a little bit because you happen to have left us in the or this for, this is in the bedroom, not the office where you are, Bridget. But the you got a writer emergency pack. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> Probably, I've got two. I've got one in front of me as well. <laughs> ah, oh, there you go. Okay, well, but, I so plug you me a little bit about made it, but I can't see the name on here. It was. I mean, it's a bit silly, but it's also I bought it. Right, I think it might have been a Kickstarter. Uh, it was developed by – it's a set of cards with instructions on them, and it was developed by a guy called John, someone or other. I'm sorry, John, who is a screenwriter in L.A. Um, and you grab this deck of 52 or whatever it is, and it gives you instructions. So um, you then have to – it's a writing prompt, basically, right? So I'm put, looking at one here, travel. A change of scenery can do wonders. Take your hero somewhere new. That doesn't mean that is the thing that's prototyping, right, what Adam was – mentioning before that doesn't mean that's something that's going to be included in the final work but it's a way to get things moving for you um yeah magnify up close everything looks different zoom in to focus on a moment a detail or an emotion and i hopefully that yeah that's kind of what i was getting at earlier on by talking about craft and really just narrowing in on something to try and see what the problem is what what are you seeing there bro Oh, I can just imagine a software engineer emergency pack that has got these like tests always need to be written. What are some tests that you could write? You know, I, I know. I love this idea. My mind is racing on this of the like uh, stuck on a problem. Like, how would you dump out those structures like in ways that were human readable or ways that you could you know pump into JQ? You have to do this now. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm I'm kind of worried about you know Brian's productivity now. Yeah, exactly. Don't, yeah, don't worry. I lost all of my personal productivity on my software engineering emergency pack. Kickstarter. <laughs> Kickstarter, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I feel like there's all sorts of things that we can kind of go do to get the juices. Fl- and I think the challenge is like, how do you get the juices flowing? With that, it, but still with getting you back again, to kind of to that coal face. Because that's, I mean, obviously the idea is like. You, you you can't you know use the writing prompts forever. You need to get back to. Patricia, how do you kind of get tack yourself kind of back in 
to where you're ultimately going? Or do you, do you have any kind of words of wisdom there? Yeah, it's got to end. You can't, I mean, you can't just tinker away at the one thing forever. You can't, you've got to finish it. And, it, you know, whether that's, you've got to, if it's software, you've got a deadline uh, you know, external to you or writing, maybe a, a deadline external to you in forms of a publisher or editor waiting for something or just you wanting to move on to the next thing. You have to see the whole. Um, I started my most recent work in progress, my w- most recent whip at the end. I wrote the ending and then I worked backwards um, so I could see the end while I was working on it. Uh, don't say test-driven development. Don't say <laughs> development. Uh, um, Some of these analogies don't work. No, no, no. Some of those analogies work so well that actually I wasn't going to say there's, t- a whole, yeah. <laughs> no. there's a whole industry there. Yeah. And when you said don't say test-driven development, weren't you saying test-driven development that entire time? I mean, just for the... <laughs> <laughs> I, th- this is where it's like w- was that Adam was not actually talking to us Adam was talking to Adam when he said don't say did you, did you know that you were oh, unmuted was I, was I not muted <laughs> oh, right, right. this is embarrassing I, but I do think no Bridget there are definitely analogs for us and I feel like one of the things that I've actually done that I've that I I would say I've done more in the last like year or so is writing kind of like what is the output that I actually want to see and then using that to like cut through um, cut through decisions I need to go make. Because the other question I, that I'm dying to ask you, Adam, and other uh, other Rust folks that may be on the call, does Rust make this indecision worse? Because you feel that like when you – it is such a great feeling when you get to that beautiful way of expressing something in Rust. But sometimes like on the way there, I find I can – um, and this happened to me more earlier than it does now, but I, even still, I find that now I find that I want to churn on the right way to go do it, which I think is broadly a good thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a, there's a piece of that, like, um, ownership in particular, being able to be having to be really crisp about that or, or having that kind of influence your design early. Like it's easy to just unwrap your way to something that works and then fix that later. Um, but, but when you, you know, for at least in my mind, sometimes I have uh, designs where I've gotten too far along before I discovered that there were some kind of more fundamentally misthought out notions around ownership. And that's where I, it kind of get tire spiked uh, by Rust at times. Yeah. And I think what I like about Rust, but also what makes it challenging in this regard, I like the fact that Rust is encouraging you to really think about your problem a lot up front. And it's going to reward you for thinking about your problem up front, that you're going to be rewarded for shifting that cognitive load to when you're first writing software. But then you do wonder, like, can that exacerbate writer's block for software engineers? Hey, Brian, another part of your tweet that, that really resonated for me was you said the pandemic has made this much more acute. And and a- absolutely, that's been the case that I, I felt that. But how, how have you felt that? Because... Um, just oh. before we leave the uh, the rust thread behind i i just want to say that uh, as a uh, still a relative newcomer to rust myself uh working on my um access kit um accessibility library project in rust i can i can uh, totally relate to uh, rust making making the uh, the the writer's block problem worse because rust sets the standard where of of we can have nice things where we don't have to compromise on on either you know, robustness or uh, efficiency 
uh, or, or, you know, or we can have an elegant abstraction that's also efficient. So I, I feel like I have to meet that bar. So, yeah, I feel like it's kind of like, all right, like we're actually not going to be writing prose. You're actually going to be writing poetry. You're like, oh, God, poetry. Like I felt like I was <laughs> I was struggling with prose and now I got to write, write poetry, <laughs> which actually does bring to mind the I uh, and I many years ago, I interviewed Arthur Whitney. Have you met Arthur, Adam? No, I haven't. Oh, God, Arthur's amazing. So Arthur is uh, learned APL from Ken Iverson. Um, developed has developed several of his own APL derivatives. Developed a um, a language called K. Um, really interesting guy. But for Arthur is very into the aesthetic beauty of software, and uh, I was asking him what he felt the best analog for software was. Um, so it's a good kind of a question. I think it's kind of interesting to ask. I, you know, I'm not even sure what my answer would be, but, you know, people talk about a biological system or, you know, people talk about a mathematical system or an engineered system like a bridge or, I don't know, something like that. And Arthur says, um, best analog for software, I think, is poetry. And I, my, my brain literally detonated. Like, unfortunately, the recording of that interview has not yet, has never been made available, but there's like a 45-second pause as I, like, seized up i was not waiting i was not expecting to get poetry but now i'm like realizing like actually maybe arthur really understood something very deep that of course he did that um that i was missing but yeah i mean matt to your i think that rust because you feel that you've got a great way to express things and that i like what you said about like rust says we can have nice things so i want it's now incumbent upon me to develop one of the nice things but Adam, I want to get to your question because I thought it was a really good one about why I think the pandemic has made this more acute. I mean, I'd love to get your take on it too. To me, it's pretty clear that the, you know, we are, we've got a lot more opportunity to be in our own heads in the, the during the, I mean, we don't have any of the, the accoutrements of the workplace. We don't have, you know, we're not walking the lunch together or we don't have the commute. We don't have these these little kind of doodads that on the one hand were not like directly related to work, but on the other hand, it served to break up the day, served to get us moving in a different direction, served to get us thinking in a different way. We don't have any of that. Like we are just like by our lonesome in a room, uh, in a room shared with our spouse in some cases. I feel Bridget and I had this idea that we were going to share the office that she is currently in. That would have been um, insane. That, yeah, we realized very <laughs> shortly. That, and also, like, uh, Bridget accuses me of being loud, which... I didn't okay. accuse you. <laughs> Fair enough. Part, it's the statement of fact, it, right. it, It's an observation that I'm loud. And um, I, uh, Steve Talk, uh, Oxide CEO, also maybe a little bit loud. And Steve and I, <laughs> when we speak together, are... <laughs> Are probably a little bit loud. Anyway, we it's very hard to share a house with anybody with me. So I'm so sorry that you had what well, you had to endure. But we're all like, you know, we are in this environment where it's this kind of this raw environment where I feel it's easier to get wrapped around the axle mentally now than it ever has been. I mean, do you disagree, Adam? No, I, I think it's absolutely the case that it's it's easier that you don't have these moments of of kind of forced quiet forced meditation. Where I mean. Not that like taking BART or the N train in San Francisco is, is that meditative, <laughs> but, it, but it's still kind of separating you from your screen. And then uh, the, the recourses you're, you're also separated from, right? Like I, I think you mentioned lunch or walking to lunch or 
just the, um, you know, obviously we're surrounded by great colleagues, at least, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, but um, I don't know when they're idle. I don't want to bug them. But if I, yeah. if I see someone walking to go get a cup of coffee, I'll, I'll go tag along. I know that they're not busy. And um, it's tough to recreate that. And I, I, I'd also love to hear from folks who are sort of remote by choice how they get through this because they, they must have figured out something I'm, I'm still working to figure out. So I have a question about the, okay, sorry about this, but this is kind of like getting to the core of what, what do we mean by writer's block? So I have this idea that if you are working on software and you have requirements, like you know where you're going and maybe <laughs> you get, and maybe you get stuck, then it's like, uh, so do we, you know, like I need, I need something to bump me out of my local minimum. I need something to like agitate. And, and I feel like that's what Adam is talking about. Like the, the pandemic took away those, those things that could agitate your mind out of being stuck. But something, and I'm, I'm really curious to get Bridget's take on this, is if, you're, if there is no requirement, if, if, if it's like you're staring at the blank page and your requirement is write an engaging novel, um, then I, I think that the pandemic may may have had the opposite effect. I certainly found myself stuck in my head, like you said, Brian. You're kind of like you. It's just you in silence, and and the result was, oh, these are the million things I could be doing, and you know, pick one and just do it. Yeah, I uh, I have to add three children and two cats to the mix. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I was unfortunately, I mean, being a, being a bit facetious there, but being. Yeah. Okay. I'll backtrack. I create those moments. Yes, there is no deadline, um, but that's only for any writer's unpublished work. As soon as you're published and you want to keep publishing, you have a lot of deadlines and you have to you know, write a lot at a lot faster pace. Um, so I have always created those um, agitating sort of circ agitate agitations, excuse me, I'll go to conferences, whether they're online or in person, ideally in person. I'll go to writers' groups, talks. Um, when writers do school visits, if they're writing for children, that's a huge part of connecting with why they're doing the work. So, yes, there isn't um, always the same sort of external deadline, um, but if there isn't, I, for one, absolutely have to create that to feel a purpose in what I'm doing. So I don't know that I'm really answering your question. Um, but I did find being in the pandemic and not having the ability, I actually just got back from a conference when the pandemic started, not being able to do those things that fuel the tank was really difficult as well. Because even though writing's pretty solitary, um, it's ultimately a shared product. I, I got to echo the conference thing. I love going to conferences. Uh, we'll often have breakthroughs and completely unrelated stuff while I'm at a conference. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Honestly, it's, yeah, and, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Um, yeah. And just, you know, to add to that, like when I'm writing software or hardware or anything, the times when I find I'm most productive are the times when I've got, you know, a large variety of different things to task switch to. Um, and so if in the morning you're, you're writing software and you get stuck and then you're designing a circuit board in the afternoon and then somehow there's, you know, um, people are lighting things on fire in the parking lot for the evening or something, <laughs> right. you know, you, like it's a very broad ranging set of things, but, you know, when you're in the office, um, at the very least, you know, 
you get things which tend to feel like they're producing wins. And during the pandemic, most of those agitations are things like, oh, go walk the dog, which while you might be able to consider that a bit of a win, isn't really. Totally. And I think that a very good point about kind of needing these different ways of kind of pulling your brain and how we have have missed those. I mean, I feel, Tom, just to your point um, about missing the conferences, this is part of the appeal of Twitter spaces for me. This, I mean, this is, does kind of approximate some aspects of a hallway track that I really miss. Like I really miss some of that, I mean, at a conference, it's always the hallway track that is what's most compelling. And I do miss that. And I think it is important because we get some of our greatest ideas from from being kind of pulled in that direction or different directions. And then you got to flip it. And I think this is kind of the, 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 the riddle of both software and writing is ultimately it is a solitary act. And even software, as collaborative as it is, is ultimately a, well, okay, I, boy, don't say pair programming, don't say pair programming, don't say pair programming, is ultimately a solitary <laughs> act. <laughs> um, I have never, personally, I, I, I get the appeal of pair programming, but for me, I think that it would kind of drive me a little bit bonkers. I don't know. Adam, have you ever pair programmed? You know, I did a little bit with our with our former colleague, uh, Eric Schrock, when we were building um, the, the facility that we referred to as Brain Slug, where we would... Um, uh, slurp data from one NFS system uh, um, into our storage product. Yeah. Um, uh, can I can I interject and sort of like push in a different perspective? Uh, I guess so. We're talking about burnout, and we're making parallels to writing literature versus writing software. And I've definitely experienced burnout, and I've definitely experienced being in positions that I had to write literature in order to justify the software that I write. But I sort of, I mean, I wanted to like interject this a few minutes ago before Brian brought out this comment that software is ultimately a solitary act. I really, I really disagree with that. But I think he, he, I think you're bringing up something really important about what pair programming doesn't work or work or whatever. But so let me let me let me let me give a little bit of context. So I feel like software ultimately a lot of software development doesn't happen in the code editor. A lot of software development happens in the Google Docs, in Quip, in Confluence, where there is planning and trying to figure out how to do cross-functional work and make sure you're on the same page with the person who's trying to manage you and whatever it is. But so that's one thing. So that's, but, but, but the more important thing is that I feel like writer's block, if I want to make parallels between writing software and writing literature, to me, it seems like the person who writes Game of Thrones or writes uh, a really big novel or whatever, they always benefit from having an editor. So they come up with a raw draft, they give it to other people, they review it, they chop some things down, they write some comments and so on. And the parallel that we have to that in software engineering is not peer programming, which is very synchronous, but it's code review, which is asynchronous. And I'm trying to bring up this point that does 
code review, bringing in somebody else who is who genuinely cares about the uh, pull request you're trying to submit, who has the bandwidth to care, right? If you have somebody who cares and has the bandwidth to care and you involve them in the code review, does that sort of like push out of the boundary of software being an activity that is exclusively inside the head of one individual person and you know the weight of it you know really overwhelms the individual person and if you have it you know the code review would give give it sort of like a iterative process so that then i don't feel like working on it somebody else is reading what i wrote yesterday and they're providing really good feedback that would keep me motivated in like pushing the next patch set you know yeah i mean i i think what you're describing more broadly is is collaboration and for me at least during the pandemic it's taken me you know like 12 18 months to figure out that like i shouldn't be working on projects where where it is deeply solitary i still agree with brian that like the actual committing of characters to editor is a solitary activity but um you know, I think that finding those those partners who you're working on, whether it's through code review or, or handing things back and forth or or debugging problems together or even pair programming. I mean, uh, I think that's a, a good way to shake yourself out of those writer block moments. Adam, can you hear me? I feel like you can. I can now. Me. Yeah, you're back okay. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, that's, I'm, so the, what's the, going on in spaces. This, this collaborative thing is an interesting uh I don't know, contrast between artist and engineer. Because how many collaborative artists do you know? So is, is, is writing code? And- I know a lot. I know a lot. Like if you're a music producer, like if you're a Snoop Dogg, you collaborated with Dr. Dre. Hold on, Nima. You Farrell know Green Snoop was- Dogg and Dr. Dre and you have not brought them into one of our spaces? <laughs> I only have a very limited okay. bandwidth, so it's not like... I also don't want to like take too much space, but I don't think uh, if you're trying to make parallels between creative processes and what is known as art versus software engineering, which is not known as art, but it is a branch of art. It's just not being treated like that. Then there is a lot of uh, things that we're missing. Yeah. I don't think any of the things like pieces of literature or pieces of music video or pieces of song, just a film you know a film you see the credits if you put together a credit for like a software like wc traditional uh unix utility yeah. how long would that be right it's it's a collaborative activity but like not not trying to like there there's more immediate points to be made i think right now the software is so complex and if you're trying to push forward an ecosystem whether it's completely new operating system if it's a new platform like fuchsia if in an existing ecosystem like uh, darwin or like ubuntu or whatever it is it's inherently collaborative like you're you're digging yourself in a hole if you're trying to pick up a domain to ex- extend an ecosystem forward hardware and software they're all the same so if you're doing solo work, I, I, I never want to sign up for that. I never want to get paid doing solo work in some low-level tool, whether it's compiler, whether it's kernel, whether it's PCB, none it, of that. So what I meant, so in, sorry, Twitter Spaces has just been enjoying this absolute freak out for the last three minutes. You've said so much that I wanted to contribute to, and I ended up, and in fact, I can't even tell if Adam is here right now. It's it's Here, uh, I can hear you. 
that's funny. And when you speak, my little icon shows that I'm speaking. So, well, Twitter Spaces is showing us that software ultimately is collaborative. Um, I so totally agree. What I mean when I said it's ultimately a solitary activity, what I meant is ultimately the what goes into an editor is going to flow out of one person's fingertips and it is of course very collaborative um and i think you made a very good point too around code review and the importance of and you know we we're very lucky to have a colleague who i feel is extraordinarily gifted with respect to code review and adam i'm not sure how much how many of your code that like cliff has gone into but it, it, not that much, but you're right that he is, he, I mean, I think it's very easy to do a bad code review and he is someone who really breathes in the entirety of the problem and helps you boil it down to the essence. And, and he's just got ways of saying, Hey, have you considered, you know, interesting to use this? Have you considered rephrasing it this way? And, or, you know, have you, and questions that are not criticisms or kind of gotchas, but like actually like really helpful editing kind of remarks, you know, that are, uh, and to me, I, it's a collaboration that I've really valued, uh, and I wish I could return the favor. I don't feel I'm a very good code reviewer. I try. I just don't feel like I'm nowhere near that good as a code reviewer. Um, I really admire um, and have really benefited from it. I feel in like my own software, I've, I've benefited from that relationship. So I just want to make sure that I'm on the record emphatically and unequivocally that there is a, there's a lot of collaboration to software. But ultimately, each of us as individuals must ultimately write our own software. And that is part of the challenge. Is that, that, that's the, in that friction is, I think, a lot of really interesting dynamics. Yeah, I guess I would want to interject another anecdote. Since not this summer, but the summer before that, one of the blockers for adoption of Rust at Google, as far as I remotely know, was... Lack of code reviewers for Rust. Huh, yeah. Because there's very strong <laughs> code review culture at Google, whether it happens through whether it happens through Garrett or whether it happens through whatever other code review system they have. And you know what? I really feel I appreciate that. I you know, I appreciate that. Cliff they, is an ex Googler though, and as an ex Googler who had a lot of frustration. I don't think I'm speaking out of school to say that he had a lot of frustration getting Google to accept Rust. I think he that, would get a, a deep belly laugh that Google's problem, having now driven Rustations out of Google, is that they don't have enough people to review Rust. Uh, so you gotta, I guess like there's two things. Um, one of them is the idea of celebrating the code review culture within a company, which Google does yeah, right. Agreed. And then there's a there's hiring. It's totally separate problems. So at the time that they were internal docs about uh, not internal, but it, it, many many projects like internal and external within Google demand Rust. You know, so at the time that it was documented that we need more code reviewers, there was this situation happening with Mozilla. There were a lot of Rust people in the market. Everybody knew that. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know how industry operates in terms of hiring and in terms of firing. But if I was, if I was, if I had the leverage to hire people and if I had infinite budget, 
which I sort of assume Google has, and subdivisions at Google, like different product areas, different products, they have that. So what happened when there were all these Rust people in the market, and there was in, it was internally documented that we need people who can give solid code review. Like, forget about people who give bad code review. There are a lot of, I yeah, if you're in a bad corporation, if you're in big corporation and there's a lot of people who potentially can give you code review, yeah, you're going to encounter a lot of people who are going to, like, not give you detailed feedback about what you're trying to achieve, but they're going to be, like, a style formatting, like, Nazi, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, to, to kind of, I mean, I, I, you, you can spend um, all night reasoning about why Google makes the mistakes they make, but I do think that there, there's an interesting kind of question to be had here about this role of... The, the editor um, or the code reviewer in terms of unsticking ourselves. Um, Bridget, I know one of the things that, that you do, you've got these writers groups where you edit one another. What role does that play in terms of, of getting folks unstuck or kind of fluid? Because you have the same dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it's fresh eyes. It's, it's different. People... I know people who have several different groups for several different functions. So someone might have a group to read the entire novel for, you know, just flow. Someone might have another, and they might have another group to work on character or plot, or, you know, one aspect of writing only. Um, but it, it essentially boils down to being fresh eyes. Um, and also if you are writing to, for a marketplace, is this, you know, is this marketable? Is this meeting the requirements according to the publishing industry of, say, you know, this is a young adult book. Is this a, hitting the targets in, in various ways to be appealingly young adult to someone who's going to buy it at a publishing house? Yeah, and I feel that we do not have – I feel that often code review is this kind of one channel that we put all review through. And I, I don't know, Adam, I, I, I feel that – assuming you're still here because Twitter is just like <laughs> – Twitter, I, I want to take a video of what I'm seeing on my screen right now. I am seeing in a loop Adam Leventhal accepted your offer as a co-host. Just in a loop. The dialog box pulls up and then it, then it goes away and I can't see you. So I assume you're here. I'm here. Thanks. All right. So, I mean, what do you think about, about the Bridget's comment in terms of having different writing groups focusing on different kind of elements? I don't feel we really do that. Oh, you know what? I, I think we do a little bit. Actually, unintentionally, this gets back to um, your anecdote about Bridget reviewing your tweets. Um, which is to say, um, I definitely go to different people for different kinds of reviews. And I, and I think back to a colleague of ours at Sun, um, Dave Powell, who was an exceptional code reviewer. Um, yeah, and in good. particular, because he would, again, really wrap his head around the entirety of the problem. And I'll tell you, when I didn't want someone to wrap their head around the entirety of the problem, I would not send it over to Dave. There, <laughs> That's right. There was, He's... He's like the uh, he's the building inspector that you know not to draw. Yeah, when yeah, yeah, right. When I, when I knew I was doing something a little bit fast and loose, you know, when I didn't, when I didn't necessarily want deep collaboration, or, or I didn't want to have to do this thing again because it was kind of a grind, and I I knew I had done it kind of the B plus way, not the A plus way. I wouldn't send it over to Dave or people with different levels of ex, different kind of areas of expertise, or you know, I'm sure there are some things that you send over to Cliff. Uh, some things that Dave and I sent over to Cliff early on in the creation of Dropshot, our, our HTTP framework, um, you know, when we were running into really tricky, uh, you know, rust um, trait issues, for example. But then, you know, other people we call on for other expertise. I don't know if that so, speaks to what you're getting at. Well, yeah, and I will tell you that I think the mistake that I have made is 
not wanting to impose on anyone, because you may kind of made this point earlier about the, a challenge of the pandemic, is not really knowing what someone is doing right now. So you don't know whether, am I bothering you while you're in this flow state, or are we both walking the lunch together? And not having that, I think, has deprived us of some of this kind of like looser conversation. And I feel like I wish on a couple of things I had gone, say, in this case, to Cliff earlier and gotten his perspective earlier because I would have done it a different way sooner. Um, and see, we can't have a really good insight about way to do it. My like, God, of course I should have done it that way. Um, and we, I, I feel we've lost a bit of that in the pandemic. I went to grad school during the pandemic. And so my professors came up with a whole bunch of really creative ways to try and solve this problem, um, which oh, no. I really enjoyed. Um, one of the things that they would do is they used gather.town um, and like for office hours, they would sort of just sit in one place and like you could go up to them and you could talk and they would be like writing their papers. Um, but they would sort of wander around when they wanted other people to talk to us. And that was like a really great experience. Did that um, work? Gather.town? Did that work? Yeah. For me, like, so I don't know if it worked for everyone, but for me, it was the thing that like got me into the programming languages community because mm, I was enjoyed and like nerd out about Lisp. Um, <laughs> so... I think having that kind of community is so important when you're, like, trying to do something really hard. Like, this whole conversation makes me really excited as someone who, like, was doing research for a while because, like, we're writing code and writing all of the time. And one of the things that we would do is we would really frequently, like, oh, I'm stuck on how to explain this. Well, let me try to write a little bit of code, like an example. Oh, I'm stuck on the example. Let me go back to, the, like, the paper that I'm writing. Um, and being able to switch between those two things, I guess an analogy when you're in industry might be documentation, but like, I found that super helpful. That I think is really good advice. And I think that's, that's kind of persistent advice that we've heard a lot is, you know, switching it up. You know, um, Ryan Zeski had a good reply to my tweet. I'm not sure if you saw that one, Adam, where he, and something that I had definitely had had to do is sometimes you just have to say like, hey, you know what, today, uh, like, today was not great. And I got to get a good night's sleep and get back to tomorrow and not get too dispirited about it. Yeah, that, that's definitely been, uh, especially, I mean, early on in the pandemic, uh, you know, suddenly we were without childcare and a three-year-old on our hands. And uh, I mean, getting to flow state was very challenging, uh, as you might imagine, when <laughs> yeah. it wasn't even the constant interruptions and they were constant, but it was the constant threat of interruption. Any, any halfway through any thought, there might be a, a three-year-old demanding one's attention. Um, and I think like Ryan, you know, you kind of say, take the wins that you can. And, uh, and also for me, um, you know, finding something I can do that, that g gives me a win and it might not be the highest priority thing or, or the top three, but it's in the top 10 and maybe that's good enough. Yeah. Adam, as a, a small aside, when I uh, was writing my PhD dissertation and heavily pregnant, I knew there were days when I would not be able to do anything. Um, so I set aside a whole bunch of time for writing my bibliography, which was mind-numbingly boring, but I could do it. And that really helped. And I, I, I will say, uh, and I don't think I would just say it because of current company, but um, having a supportive life partner in this regard has been also really helpful. I think that, Bridget, the, what, uh, the endeavors that we have are similar, similar enough that like, I know that like if you're in a, a state of flow that, you know, yeah, I'll go take the kids or it's certainly vice versa. The, and, you know, seeing the value of doing something like the, the, the clay studio and so on. I think that it really, it helps to have someone around you who is, and 
God knows it's not your toddler unless you've got a toddler. And I'm not talking about just your toddler. I'm talking about just all toddlers. I I feel I have been during the pandemic. I have had to counsel you more than once. Like it de- it definitely does get better. It does get better. It does get better. I don't know. You know that from your older son, but still waiting. But yeah, still waiting. I know. I know you're gonna hold me to it. Who said take the wins that you can? Yeah, take the wins that you that, can. That's right. You gotta take the wins again. Adam, was that yeah. you? Yeah, I'm gonna use that. Well, uh, I yeah, think we I mean, got. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just saying, I, I've counseled some some colleagues of mine, just saying, you know, uh, the the mantra, and it's sort of loser talk in one sense. But I, but what I tell myself is like, anything is something, right? If I can have, uh, you know, there were times during the pandemic when I'd I'd be on uh, childcare for six hours of the day and and working too, and then trying to muster some energy at night to to work a few more, and there, if I could go to bed just having done something you know it, it, it was and carry that even if it wasn't the most important thing and yeah sorry Bridget I can see unmuting yeah I mean just to uh, bounce off what Adam said I had earlier criticized blanket advice like you must write a thousand words a day you must write it at 9 a.m to 10 p.m or whatever um, but having parameters that you or goals that you set for yourself can be hugely liberating because you can say look I, I did the thing I achieved something so yeah, and then like kind of giving yourself then permission. I think there's nothing the pandemic has made hard is that we have no boundary between our work life and our home life. Then, hey, I achieved this, and now I'm going to give myself, you know, permission to go, you know, what, watch a game with the kids or whatever it is. I'm going to give myself kind of the. I think that that's also important is to to time box yourself in that regard. I guess I wanted to put in some call to action. But it's not like I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm going to do it too. But I don't have a blog. So here it is. So there's a lot of blog posts for like how to become a better hacker or how to become a better software engineer. I haven't seen any blog posts around how to be a better code reviewer. Mm, Yeah. Because that's something that can push you out of the writer's blog. I guess there is like a common acknowledgement that software is a collective thing even though in the end you're gonna type in that's two three lines that are gonna have like very big impact on the entire ecosystem we all acknowledge that but in the end you gotta be a good code reviewer and you wanna bring in other people who wanna be code reviewers up to speed faster than whatever it is right now if we wanted to write a blog post right like that what would be the highlights or, I mean, I, we probably kind of discuss this, like, in the Twitter spaces, but I really wish we could see some, some blog posts right that like, how to be a better code reviewer, or, like, anecdotes around code review scenarios, hopefully with links, if they're open source, around why this comment from this person was an opening towards this blog that I had. Like, 10 items, 5 items from 5 people is already 25 good code review practices you know so i do have a blog post exactly like that up right now um it's linked on my twitter profile if you want to take a look at it um i think i'm pretty good at code reviews i don't know but um I have to let me try it what i think about code reviews and put it in a blog post it's probably the only blog post on my blog but i did a talk at 
Kendall, that, that sounds awesome. I really want to go read that. I, if Twitter Space had made it easier for me to go to your blog entry right now, I'd love for people to drop it as a tweet. Uh, it's it's right there on the I, – I pinned it. Thank you, Kendall. That's awesome. I will tweet. Well, uh, when, when you have uh, several years developing software, uh, a frequent blocking problem, for example, to me, in the last few years or few days – is the um, this um, sorry the vicious circle when you have um, okay when prevent to making decisions and move forward with your development uh, is when your code uh, you think your code could be better and you enter in a refactory loop of your code you have written in the last few days multiple attempts to improve your what you do and you can get out of this vicious circle and so many alternatives uh, you create a class you create a function and auxiliary function and structure or make the process easy um this kind of coding and repeating code and you make um, very difficult to move forward and give up from this attempt to continue to 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 try to be better. In these writing blogs, uh, I know how happy I was in the past when I less know about uh, software engineering. In, uh, the decisions was uh, very easy. Um, I, yes. I, I don't know. This just happened to me. Well, I think, and this is a point that I was making earlier too, that I feel like in some ways, the more you know, the more crippling it can be because you, and also you've, then you've seen some of these decisions end badly, which gives you, then makes you reticent on some of these things. You don't want to incur technical debt and so on. So no, I totally agree. Uh, Kendall, I, um, I would love to pick up code review as a separate Twitter space topic. I think we should pick that up next week. Adam, I don't know what you think about that. I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. So Kendall, would you mind coming back next week to talk code review? Yeah, of course. All right, yeah, let's let's plan plan on doing that. And Bill, I noticed you you're trying to get in here, and then I think we'll want to wrap it up. Yeah, I was I was just going to say burnout. I mean, yes, burnout does affect software engineers to the point where you have to do anything you can to try and fight your way back to flow. Uh, you know, I I wound up uh, deciding to learn Rust because I was not going. You know, my day job was all Fortran, so I was like. At least I had a side project that I didn't feel guilty about walking away from, but then I wound up, Rust wound up, I inadvertently started sharpening my skill set as a result, and then decided, you know, I was burned out on my last job to the point I needed, I, I needed a change of scenery, so I went from old school Fortran and Python on Linux systems to doing .NET on Windows servers. And it, it, it was like just taking a plunger to the block. It was gone. You know, six months, you know, like two months in, and I was just, you know, pushing code to production every day, and it was glorious. And But now I'm back in C++ land. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. Well, this is a really good point because I remember when you know when I I and actually right before I met Pritchett, right before Pritchett beat me a battle, Chris, I had moved up to San Francisco and I didn't realize how unhappy I was 
living in a share house in Menlo Park until I moved up to my own place in San Francisco and realized like, wow, I was really, sometimes you don't see how unhappy you are when you're kind of surrounded by it. And I do think you're right, Bill. Like sometimes you got to just change it up and make a big change and, uh, and just have that confidence that you're going to rediscover that joy, rediscover that competence, rediscover what brought you into the discipline. Yeah, rediscover why computers were fun. You know, I lo- I found a photo of myself uh, as a child, tri- you know, uh, being hand unwrapping the Commodore sixty four under the tree, and I'm like, you know, it's like young me is smiling, thinking this is a good thing, and then the other there were certainly times during my career where it's like, oh my gosh, computers were a mistake. But now I think I'm back to enjoying computers, and I, you know, I I I, I have had more days of flow than I have without flow in the past week. And yeah, I'll take it. I'll take Absolutely. It. Celebrate the wins. All right. Bridget, do you have any, any final words for us now having heard a bunch of software engineers sound off on the, the parallels? Um, I hate to say I don't. It's been a really interesting discussion. Um, seeing the parallels, learning a bit about how, yeah, I won't ramble. It's uh, no final words, but go, go get them. <laughs> that yeah, that's good. Hey, no, <laughs> Those are good final words. <laughs> writing is writing. If it's if it's software or if it's code, go get them. Writing, writing is writing. writing. Absolutely. All right. Hey, thank you very much, everybody. Really appreciate it. And Kendall, let's do next time. Code review is a great topic. So we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye, bye.